Welcome to today's episode of the Bake Out Sports Report and the Live from Lake Balfour Podcast Network. And we are now joined here for the first ever Baco 30 for 30 podcast. So we're going to be doing a series of these with myself, Greg Silver, Danny Silver, and we'll have special guests on throughout these episodes. And what these 30 for 30 podcasts are, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the format, is basically we're doing a deep dive into one very specific moment, one very specific event, and we're just going to go deep. We're going to bring it back. We're kind of going to relive that moment, relive that event. And there's so many great ones to pick from just in my time at camp in the last, you know, eight years, but even going back before that, just incredible moments that have happened over the years that we really want to dive back into and explore on a deeper level, both with us as Baco historians, but also with the people who were involved in them the most. And we may be having a special guest appearance here in a few minutes by one of the people most involved in this uh, instance of the 30 for 30. Then we are going to be talking today about the event that happened at towards the end of 2017 summer, it was the Baco versus Brant night game, the last game of the careers of the 2017 Waiters. Just an incredible night up in the Superdome. Baco won ultimately this game by over 20 points in a rout. The atmosphere was electric. So, Greg and Danny, what do you guys remember about that night? Well, first of all, I couldn't be more excited about this topic and about this whole series your intro just has me pumped up but this this particular one is such like multifaceted it wasn't just about the basketball part of it not at all on some other podcast but this was the night where Ginzi made the uh the half court shot at halftime this was the night where the superdome had its first big sports moment um, this was the night where Baco basketball kind of pivoted from some frustrating losses to a mini era of, or what's now been a mini era. Hopefully, it's a longer era of, of championships and success and dominance. And it all seemed to uh, happen in that one pivot moment of August second, Wednesday, August second, uh, twenty seventeen. Yeah. So, what do you remember about that, Greg? Um, about, about the day in, in general, like the, the whole, the day in general is that camp is, 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 camp is the best place in the world because of the people. And yes, camp is beautiful. And yes, camp has great activities and people can be creative and competitive, but the, the people are what make it. And, and and the special moments, whether it be Olympics or awards night or a tournament win, those are the things that really stick in our brains. And, and this event, this game, the events before, during, and after, and in particularly Ginzi's shot at halftime, goes down in history, in my opinion, as just one of those magical moments up there with you know, Mel's story, like we talked about a couple of weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, and it's not a mistake the game, the that we're... concerts, um, you know, just legendary moments in camp. And I almost picture this whole day happening in slow motion. Um, and I'm really just excited to do a deep dive into it today. Yeah, it's not an accident that we chose this to be a 30 for 30. This isn't just like a flashback to a game. Like, 
when you think 30 for 30, you think of, yeah, like sports, but so much around it that made that sporting event more special that kind of pulls you in. Like, you remember this game. You can picture exactly where you were in the Superdome for yeah, this moment. You can just. The personalities, the backstory, the, the struggle, the, the moment, it, 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 it's really got everything. And it's got everything for, for every type of camp person, I feel like. It was really. It was Bedlam. It was, it was just a magical Camp Baco Pride kind of bursting at the seams, blowing up the Superdome kind of moment. Um, let's why get to you. Why don't, we, why, don't we, why don't we explain the, the, the flow of the day for the audience and so they can get a little bit of an understanding if they weren't at camp that summer. Yeah, so what I think you need to first understand is that this is towards the end of the summer, as you mentioned, Danny, August 2nd. So we're talking, you know, a couple days before Olympics, but this night game happens almost every summer where it's the last game of these guys' careers. Like, this is it. This is your last time wearing the Baco uniform. Brant comes into Baco, and every year this is probably the most special basketball moment at camp to see these guys on the court for the last time. So you come into the context of that happening and you have guys coming back from senior trip who are younger and you have all these different moving parts in camp and it's kind of this culmination of this moment that brings the whole camp together in such a special way, which, you know, before you get to the incredible nature of the game and the event itself, that pre-context already just amplifies the special feeling you kind of have. Just to paint the pre-context a little bit more detailed, we're, we're, the bazaar was three days earlier. Days off are done. Trips are done. It's that time of the summer where, like, every night is an all-camp event. Um, and it was one of those days where, you know, the waiters that were on the team were, you, you know, just to name a few, the main players were Jake Cohen, Jake Rubin, Nate Bookfar, Grant Pitkoff, um, you know, Tyler Green. Basketball bunk. Yeah, but just all day, the weather was kind of dicey. Are we going to be indoors? Are we going to be outdoors? Are we going to be in the Superdome? Um, the guys all wanted to play on the court, but, you know, I kept on saying the Superdome needed a moment. And we it was just one of those days, you know, the waiters were probably, you know, busy getting ready for Olympics. And, you know, it was just – it was literally like the last normal day of camp before we really got into the break and all that, you know, I'm sure there was some mountain jam practice going on. There was, there was just a lot of, you know, culminating. culminating event. Yeah. Yeah, event it's, it's the kind of day, it's the kind of day at camp where you save your, your, your top shelf t-shirts for yeah. You're wearing your best t-shirt that day. Yeah, and you know what's really interesting to me, Daddy, about what you just said, how the guys want to play on the courts? Because it's one of those things where, you, like, you picture that last game, that last moment you have with everyone on the hill cheering. Like, you could just picture that your whole life waiting for that moment where it's finally your last game and you get the send-off. Like, everyone pictures that on the courts. And then when it actually gets rained on and it happens at the Superdome, it all of a sudden kind of flips it on its head, even though it's the same game, it's the same players on the court, it's the same opponent. But somehow, when it's in the Superdome, it just has a different feeling. And I think one of the feelings is like purely logistical in that on the hill, everyone's on the hill compact. Like it's like a Cameron Crazies type situation where everyone's like confined in a tiny space. And then like you physically can't do that at the Superdome, which means people surround the court like. And that creates such a different atmosphere. Not that one's better or worse, but I think it just creates kind of this sense of just you have – it's such a great home court advantage, right? 
Well, I think more so than a sports home court advantage. One thing about games in the Superdome, especially evening activity games, every person is there. Yeah. Um, when we play a game on the courts, there's always a couple of kids on the upper that are maybe throwing a frisbee, or maybe even some kids down by the tennis shack playing a you know a tennis tournament match, or or the lake has a general swim. But this was a full camp event and it's raining so you literally can't be anywhere else yeah every single person was there and i think that more than any factor alone creates this the backdrop for this moment there wasn't one camper or counselor that wasn't there that wasn't present to experience what we're about to talk about um and then basically i don't know if you want to get too into the game i guess we want to summarize the game itself the game was one of those, you know, when you watch those college basketball games and Duke goes into a conference opponent's gym and within the first five minutes, you just know that the home team underdog is just not going to miss. The crowd's going to be super into it. And no matter what Duke does, this is like the one time a year they're going to get blown out. And it's going to be the greatest moment in the history of, you know, Clemson's gym or whatever. And everything went right, us being Clemson in that, you know, with Brant being Duke. Every single thing went right for us in that game. Um, I mean, we jumped on him, I think it was 31 to 8 at one point. Um, we ended up, like you mentioned, cruising to a 20 point victory. We could get into the details of the game later, but, you know, the halftime, you know, Baco traditionally has a half court shot at halftime. Ginzi's the one, he's a waiter. He comes on at halftime, he hits the half court shot. We win the game. We break this, you know, this curse. Um, the whole camp goes to the archery field for a, for, for for a dance party. I mean, I'm giving you the cliff notes of the just of incredible, the night. yeah. Um, I assume we're gonna dive into the details, but you know, it was a pivot moment for Baco basketball. It was a magical moment with Ginzi's shot. It was the great all camp event to kind of trigger us, you know, forward into summer 2018. Um, yeah, I mean, any, Greg, you want to help s- summarize for for the listener out there? I mean, I I think the the story starts and stops with Ginzi's shot. Um, that that's what I think. I know Maddie wanted to run through a few categories. I think when we get to talking about Josh Ginzi Ginsburg's shot, I think that is a nice microcosm of sort of the magic of this entire evening. Um, yeah, and we'll get to that in a minute. But what I want to talk about before we get there is I think there's a few parts about the game itself. Because, right, it's one of those things where you look at any sporting event, right? The Bulls have all this drama around them, as we're seeing right now with the Jordan 30 for 30 on ESPN, right? None of the other stuff around it, none of the like communal aspect of Chicago and the fans and the craziness happens without the winning on the court. And that's true with any sporting event. There's all this great stuff that happens around it. But without Baco finally being able to overcome Brand and just really break out of what's been what had been a few year slump with a basketball age group that we knew was dynamic, that was really I think where it has to start with. So that's what I want to talk about first, because to just set the scene from a purely basketball perspective heading into this game, as you alluded to before, the 2017 Waiters are a really strong group of basketball players. Jake Cohen's a physical player inside. 
you know, Pickoff can really shoot the ball and just create offensively. And then, of course, you have Glatzer. And now Glatzer's 14 in this situation against Brant Lake. Now, one of the keys is because, of course, 16s happens very early in the summer, like the second week in camp. Glatzer was at an AAU basketball tournament at that time, so he actually never even came to that 16s tournament. So now, all of a sudden, he's coming to that game. He's coming to the night game, and you have no idea what it's going to be like for him because you have no idea how he fits with the team. And obviously, he's played with these kids for years, but we've just never seen that on the court. So having him come there and just make that impact, it was just electrifying. So, Maddie, I just... You left out Jake Rubin when you were listening, guys. Oh, my bad. Fine, it's fine. This is a bold statement, but Jake Rubin is probably, this is a crazy statement. Alumni are going to be like, what the heck is he talking about? Jake Rubin is probably the best in-game three-point shooter in the history of camp. I mean, he hit five plus threes against Brand, like, literally like five or six times in his career. What about that game when he was a 15-year-old in the same 16th night game where he almost brought Baco back for so, those threes? So you're rolling a group. And just to give you a little bit of the basketball background leading into this, um, I, I, I alluded to the fact that we had gone years without winning, but just like the very recent history going into this game, um, this particular group had lost a brand three times twice already that summer um once in 16s like you mentioned without glatzer uh where we actually raced off to a pretty good lead and then we just ran out of gas we just didn't have you know we were really missing glatzer um and then we played them at brant earlier in the summer jake rubin had six threes in the first half and we couldn't have played any better glatzer hurts his hand in the second half and we lose probably ended up losing by like almost double digits but just you know that injury happened to Glatzer the day before 14 so then we lost 14 so it was a really disappointing performance from that group um and it always just seemed like dating back a few years previously like Vardaro wasn't there for 16s the year before and he was our best player and Vardaro wasn't there the year before that where he was probably the guy that would have, you know, brought us over the top. Paul Emden wasn't there for his six. We always, I always just felt like we were like one play. Our best player was never there. Um, we also, a few days earlier at thirteens at Brandt got literally beat at the buzzer. It was like one gut punch after another. Um, and I remember saying to those waiters, Jake Rubin, Jake Cohen, Pitkoff, Bookvar, you know, just saying. The, the script is going to flip tonight. I knew it was going to happen. And the Superdome needed a moment. Yeah. This, but the other thing, too, is we had won 12s the previous week, which was like our first win in what seemed like forever in a really dominant fashion with Eli Greenberger and Miles Samuels and JFD and Hillman and, and, and that group. And I remember I actually drove home for a night and on the way home I realized you know what we're going to try we're going to box in one Mance in this game we had been flirting with this 3-2 zone with this team all season long and doing enough to stay in games we couldn't grab a rebound and we box in one Mance and that from like an X's and O's standpoint 
threw Brandt off their game and then add Glatzer, add the fact that Ruben hits every shot, add like Jake Cohen, everything coming together. We literally blitzed them like the first first five minutes. They were deer in the headlights because when you combine that playing with the atmosphere, just like kind of Um, Baco just wanted it, right? This Brandt team, you know, they'd won 16s. They'd kind of done it. Whereas all of a sudden you're playing with these Baco kids who just wanted it so badly and feeding off the energy of the crowd. It was just one of those things where everything just came together. I can't bring up enough times the buzzer beater the previous week against Brand at 13s. It just felt like it was literally like the hundredth time in a row our heart had been broken and it had to finally flip. And this was the night. Like everyone was there. It was the right group of waiters. It was the right physical location. It was the right time of the summer that we talked about. It was just the ultimate pivot moment. And very rarely, I mean, like I said, you see in college basketball, you know, all the time, there's just that one game where the, everything falls into place and the Dukes or the UNCs just have no chance because Clemson's making every shot or NC State's making every shot. And, we, and that's exactly what the night was from like a karma standpoint um from a basketball standpoint just to set the scene of what was the vibe in the gym before we get to Ginzi. agreed so that's how we're gonna set the scene but i think the question that we have to ask now the next thing on our list is what is the biggest only could happen at camp moment and i think this is a pretty obvious one um so greg why don't you talk about this one and then we have a very special guest going to be joining us to help share his side of the story so, yeah, so, I mean, what I was talking about before, what, what makes camp so special is, is the people. There's just so many amazing people at Mako and Chinawa. Um, You know, the list goes on forever and ever and ever. And, some, you know, there's a debate. Is it people that make camp or is it camp that makes the people? <clears throat> Probably a debate that will never be solved. Um, but in this special moment where the karma was and the magic was there, uh, having Josh Ginsey Ginsburg stand at half court and take that half court shot at halftime for the crowd was in my opinion the can only happen at camp moment of this of this night just to give you a backstory on on Ginzi started at camp as a young kid you know great camper um was a you know he was an all-around camper well yeah we're gonna get to that and he was a waiter he was a waiter during this summer 2017 you know, just a, a great person, a great camp personality, kind of kid that would go on head, head OD with Danny and me and hop on the back of the golf cart and, you know, make judgments on who's doing a good job and who's not when he was a camper. And I remember when he was really, really young, he thought the all-around camper award was for someone that's been all-around camp. So, like, if you went to the lower, and, like, if you went to the upper and went to the lake, and then if you hit the archery range and then the Superdome, if you went to the lean-tos, like, you were an all-around camper because you went all-around camp. I was telling my wife about that the other day, and she's like, yeah, that, that makes sense. You know? Well, Ginzi has also, like, worked his way into some, like, epic silver family photos where it's, like, all of us and our wives and our parents and then Ginzi. And it's yeah. happened, like, yeah. more than once. Well, yeah, now we, well, now we force it. Now we seek him out to get yeah. in that picture. I think, I think he's the only non-blood relative or relative by marriage in our family calendar. Kinsey also, you know, he would drive around the golf cart or he would ride the golf cart with me when we would host tournaments and he helped me unpack the trophies at night. And 
we'd go around talking about which referees look comfortable in the big games. I mean, the kid's wise beyond his years. He's a Montreal native. Um, he gives a great Adon alum. He's one of those. He checks a lot of boxes. Checks a lot of boxes, and he's he's definitely a you know a guy generations from now will like his his name will still be being said at camp for beyond this moment. But um, right, but this is certainly an iconic moment of his Baco career, and we could not be more thrilled to now bring him in and get his take. So Ginzi, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Doing good. So I think what we need to talk about after a very lofty introduction is we need to talk about that shot. What do you remember from that night, but particularly that half-court shot? So I remember the day like it was actually yesterday, and like we were like all the waiters were like kind of like building up to this moment. Like we were. Like, the ones who were on the A-team, like, most of the guys were on the A-team. So, like, it was just, like, me and Dylan Winnick, Beans, and, like, Andrew Schwartz, and, like, Max Levitt. Getting ready to go up to the Superdome. And I remember getting dressed to go to the Superdome, because, like, I didn't expect to, like, be shooting a half-court shot, because, like, usually it would, be, it would be, like, someone who, like, got enough cheers, like a counselor at the time, or someone like that. Yeah. So... I walk up and there's two possible outcomes. There's one, I either make the shot, which is a very tough outcome. Like we knew it wasn't gonna happen. I thought it wasn't gonna happen. And there's the other outcome where I'm gonna either airball the shot or I'm gonna bank it off the rim and everyone will forget about that. So I'm walking there in my Timberlands and I twirl the ball in my hands. Like I do a little twirl with the ball and I do a little, like, I'm thinking of ways people have done it. Like, they run up, and they shoot, and they do, like, all these crazy things. And they're, like, doing, like, a half-court shot. So I decide, oh, I'll do it like that. But the problem is, I run up, and then I stop at the half-court line, and then I shoot. Now, it, it barely made it to the free throw line. And I'm like, well, the line was good, so I guess I'll put a little more force on it, right? And everyone starts chanting, one more shot, one more shot. And at this point, I'm like, okay, I, there's a chance I can make it, like a 1% chance. So I'll try. So I do another throw. With, they give me back with the ball. I do a little throw with the ball. And I go, okay, I'm going to put a little more legs in it. So I do a little run up to the, the half court. And I stop. And I bend my knees. And I just shoot it. And, it's, and I'm looking at it. And I'm watching it. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be an air ball again. And it swishes in, and I, and I honestly, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> and then everyone just mobs me in the middle, and then, like, next thing you know, I'm in the right side next to the water fountain, and it was just one of the craziest moments I've ever been a part of. Well, let me ask you guys this, Greg and Danny. Either one of you can answer this question. What's, like, a brief history of the half-court shot? Has it, Since you've been in camp, has there always been half-court shots in the middle of games? I don't think so. I remember when I was a kid. Honestly, the whole game production value um, is light years ahead of what it was when I watched four teams in 1989, you know? It's like between the starting lineups, starting lineups, it's kind of slow. I mean, the starting lineups has been there, but it's slowly built in the production value and I think what's to be expected uh, at a halftime of those games uh, is, you know, it, it, 
I would say that the half court shot's probably been there for a long time. I mean, most of our listeners remember it. But if there was a power rankings of half court shots, you remember. Hey, how many half court shots have ever gone in? Like, none. But if there was a rankings of how many half court shots do you, like, really remember and will you not forget? Ginsburg has to be the so watered down because nobody makes them, so we just keep having guys, like, whoever, like, the funny waterfront counselor from overseas is that year will, like, you know, roll out in his Birkenstocks or his or his Crocs and try and launch one up, or you know, you'll get you know whoever the uh, you know whoever like the Dewan is for that summer, you know, whatever it may be. Um, you know, I'll, I'll say this: I've been at camp a, a very, very, very long time. My my memory is pretty good. It's not like Danny's. My memory is pretty good. There are a couple of moments that stick out as all time best moment ever layers upon layers of why it was so special probably a whole nother podcast we could talk about these moments Ginsby's shot is right up there with the greatest and it's it has to do with where like like danny was saying where it was the importance of the game the time of summer also who josh Ginsburg is as a person as a camp legend and just the reaction of the campers, the counselors. I saw some pictures the other day. I think Dr. Bookbar sent me some pictures of the moment, and it's just captured so well. There's so much joy. You see, like, Bruno doubling over with laughter and just every single person from the youngest kid in Bunk 4 all the way up having the biggest smile, so happy because Josh Ginsey hit a half-court shot. Yeah, and I think for the guys that don't know Ginzi as well, Ginzi, his shooting form is what is adds to the hilariousness of it. It's like a shot put, very arm, not a lot of leg. It's, it's like it's a the, shot that will never go in. How would you explain also, it, Ginzi? But also, Ginzi, as a basketball player, he's not the first guy you would expect to have made that shot. I mean... I remember coaching Ginzi once in an intercap playing a 1-3 with a cherry picker with Ginzi cherry picking. Do you remember that, Ginzi? I do remember that. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, Ginzi, we used to do those lessons up in the Superdome. You would work so hard, but, you know, basketball wasn't something that came easy to him. But that was another layer of him being the one hitting the shot. Um, this is the same kid that thought he went all-around camper because he was all-around camp when he was nine years old, you know. Um, now, from my perspective and some of the other guys in his bunk you know we just had the most perfect half of basketball we're outside doing our we're up 31 to, to 9 or whatever and we're you know jay cohen is dead serious and we're less being no like we got to win the next four minutes of the second half and blah 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 and somebody comes running up and ginzy hit the shot well, this, we, we missed it I didn't see it. And Jay Cohen, who's, you know, the leader of, of the team, is like, no, guys, we got to stay focused. Like, you know, they're going to come out in the second half. They're good. And, and I just stopped there. But I was like, guys, Ginzi hit the shot. Beyond <laughs> <laughs> basketball. Um, and it, it really hit, like, on all five senses of, like, amazingness. It, it, it was – it was incredible. It, it was the right guy at the right time, with the right shot, the right moment. It was. It was definitely an only happening camp moment. For sure. So I want to now move on, Ginzi. What else do you remember about this night? Is the perspective of a waiter, someone who's seeing 
your friends take the court for Bingo for the final time. What else sticks out to you about that game, both on the court and just the atmosphere and the magic that surrounded that day? Well, when you have a night game, like, when you have the atmosphere of a night game, like, it's pretty special to, like, be, like, it's not, like, no offense to today, like, it's not as, like, intense as it was, but, like, in 2017, like, it was, like, intense, like, like, we had, like, people all around the court. Like, everyone was going where they weren't supposed to. Like, we had a couple of counselors, like, trying to, like, push everyone to the side. Like, so, like, they could dribble and, like, nobody listened. Like, we all just went where we wanted to. And I think it was a whiteout. I think. And, and what was special is we never beat. Like, we always came close to beating this Brand Lake team. But we never, I don't think we ever beat them, right? And, like, we were all hyped because this was, like, our last, like, chance to, like, beat them, like, to show, like, who we are. And I remember watching the game. Like, as you're watching the game, like, and then, like, we're just making shot after shot after shot. And, like, they're getting frustrated and, like, they're, like, committing fouls, like, left, right, and center. And you're, like, like, and then, like, I look at the scoreboard and I'm, like, we're winning, like, this game, like. Right after the first half, like, you knew, like, everyone in the building knew, like, we were going to win this game. Like, Yeah, their, their unflappable players were completely frustrated. Um, I hate to say it, but they quit. Like, they quit early, and it was because we, you know, and Ginzi said, you know, we, they had been close. If you, this age group was actually never close until that summer. I remember going with that same age group to Brant the year before in, a, in, like, an afternoon game and just getting literally beat by 100. And it was basically the same group, um, and uh, and it and they we we came close at sixteens, and then we came a little closer at the night game at Brant, and it was just the karma. It Ginzi's right, like it just shot after shot was going in, everything kind of was working. All right, and I think that's a good segue into our next topic. So. I heard, Danny, you mentioned the fact that Baco had been blown out a few times before, and there was also the 13s buzzer beater miss. It just felt like everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong for Baco the past few summers basketball-wise, and it certainly wasn't for lack of effort, lack of talent. It just kind of felt like Brant Lake and Echo Lake as well, just the other camps. There was just something that was just missing. We were waiting for that breakout to happen. It was... uh... You know, I know the year before, 2016, we played Racket, who just, like, had Dirk Nowitzki, basically, like a 6'4 shooter that, uh, you know, we'd lost in overtime, and then had we won that, you know, we, we, we could have won the tournament. And, you know, Glatzer, you know, when he was 13, he blew out his knee before the summer, so we, you know, that was our one chance to win the toilet paper game in, like, two decades, and... We never really got a shot at that. It was just like Vardaro was never in camp. You know, it was just... It just felt like everything could go wrong. So this yeah, brings me to my next... One, right? um, I just want to say one more thing on the Ginzi shot that I forgot to mention before. Um, I talk about with some of my camp friends all the time. Like One of the most magical everyday moments in camp is when you're playing dodgeball. It doesn't happen as much because we don't play dodgeball as much anymore as when there, when there was the old dome. When a guy hits a half-court shot to get his team back in a dodgeball is one of the most, like, moments of elation you can possibly have. Like, you're never a bigger fan of that guy than when he hits that shot. Like, imagine, like, Lee Shadow hitting a half-court shot in dodgeball. Like, you want to 
You want to hug the guy? But then the imagine guy. that moment happening, and then imagine having you know two hundred fifty people watching it. But imagine, imagine watching the greatest half of Mako basketball as a full group at like that vulnerable time of, of the summer, and then on the wake of that, it's Ginzi hitting the dodgeball shot, and it's the whole camp he just let back in the game. Um, that's that, that's great analogy. Yeah, that's just special. Okay, so the next thing we have here on the list is what I call the biggest sliding doors moment. So essentially, for those of you who don't know what that means, essentially we're saying the biggest what-if scenario, if stuff turns out different, how do we rewrite the future? So I think in this game, for me, going back to more of a basketball side of things and just Bako's overall kind of just the temperature of the basketball program as a whole, before this game, there's so many tough losses. You saw the talent in the pipeline. You had my age group, which had Glatzer, Rab, Ben Cohen, Bookfar, Potter, right? all these guys, and you just felt this pipeline coming on. But Baker couldn't just quite break through. And all of a sudden, it just happens at once. And it was just like, oh, that was just like the moment. But let's just hypothetically play out. Baker loses this game, but you still have all that talent coming in the pipeline. Like, what did this game mean for not only the physical X's and O's on the court, but just the mentality that Baco basketball had that like, oh, like we can do this, right? We can reach that level. I feel like that's the type of thing that maybe you don't think about as much because you don't think like a summer later, Baco being able to win 16s has any correlation to, you know, 10 months earlier where Baco dominate the Superdome. But it's kind of one of those things where it's just an overall way that you feel like Baco really has a chance in these things. And I think that really meant a lot. I mean, if you're, if you're talking sliding door moment, in my opinion, there's two that are in the discussion. One is, what happens if we didn't play the game this year? Yeah. Does it still shake out the way that, that it did? And then I think the obvious one is, what if Kinsey doesn't hit that shot? You know, how, how different is the, is the rest of the night? I mean, there's so many things that happened in the ensuing hours from dance party at the archery range. That might not happen if Kinsey doesn't hit that shot. I think we probably still win the game. But I don't think Mickey holds the keys to the shower house saying, this is, I have the power if Kinsey doesn't hit that shot. That's three or four years of jokes that we've been building on. Um, so I think it's the Kinsey shot is the sliding door, along with maybe the dicey weather that I guess we were dancing around. But just to answer your question, Maddie, if, how does that game change from just like the coach's standpoint? I think having the chutzpah, the guts to – just this is just from a coach standpoint. Finally, gimmick defense, um, Brandt, and not just assume that everyone from Brandt's going to make every shot um, was a risk that like I had been not taking for about a decade, um, and we did it. And also, just like the system kind of working and clicking, and just like the open, just the positionless open floor that we had been working on for basically two, three summers. It, it all. I think it's. I think I've said this on a few podcasts. This group set the like X's and O's kind of groundwork for the next couple groups. But I think bigger sliding doors basketball moment um, was the 16-0 run in the last two and a half minutes to win 16s the following summer. Yeah, that's fair. 
Um, but as far as, like, if you just look at it, under you just log Baco basketball results, this was the ultimate pivot point of loss, 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 loss. Win, 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 win. Win, 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 win. Yes. Um, so, uh, it was a definite everything comes together kind of game. Which anybody who's played sports knows those feelings. Right. Um, so, Greg, I also want to hit on a point that you just mentioned. You just brought up the sliding doors moment of whether or not this game's at the Superdome or the courts. Now, I think it's important to preface this by saying there's a lot of great elements of both. When you, I said this earlier on the podcast. When you think of that having your classic Baco basketball moment... You think of that in the courts. You don't picture that in the Superdome. And I think that's for two reasons. I think that's first because, like, 90% of games are played at the courts. You picture everyone on the hill. You just picture that atmosphere just coming alive. But the other thing is that there had never been a game with the Superdome that looked like this where magic could actually happen there, right? So you had never seen that place come alive like that. And all of a sudden, when it does, you just picture it differently because it's one of those nights where I remember where I was sitting there because it's just so different. When you think about the games on the hill, there's a lot of good ones that you can think of over the years. But when I think about those games that kind of blur together, like I think that was the game where Ruben hit the four threes, but like maybe it wasn't. But was that a year earlier? Like you know which game was the Ginzy shot Superdome game. Like that's a game you say the Ginzy shot game, it's like, oh, that game, that was at the Superdome. I was there. I can picture that happening, right? So I think that's a huge element of it in terms of what made it so special at the Superdome because the surrounding the court, that's great. And I think that that creates an atmosphere that's really cool. But it's just kind of the differentiator of like, oh, like you expect when you go into Cameron Indoor to expand on your analogy, right? All those games there, like there was those cool Zion games where he was dunking. You have over the years, all these different games. Like you can picture that place. But then you had that one moment at like the Clemson type school, the NC State type school, as you were saying before, Danny, like that somehow just sticks in your mind a little differently. I think that plays big time into the psychology of this game and what makes it so memorable. I think, I don't remember that day as well as others, but I can pretty much guarantee you that Jake Cohen probably asked me a dozen times, is it going to rain? Is it going to rain? Can we please play on the courts? As if I'm in charge of whether it rains or not. I, I always tell the campers that we, we can control the weather, so maybe Jake Cohen thought I actually did control the weather. <clears throat> but he probably asked me a million times, if the, we got to play on the courts, we got to play on the courts. But I wouldn't be surprised if Danny and I sort of, went behind closed doors and we're like, we're playing this game in the Superdome. We well, knew from an admin standpoint that this, this Superdome needed its magic moment and Ginzi was waiting in the wings to bring it home. And guess what will not happen again in the near future? Someone asked demanding that the game be played on the courts because now you have this moment in the Superdome and it's like, wow, this building can do that. It can come alive like that. And you hadn't seen that before. But now when you look back out on the future, what do you think about this, Ginzi, as someone who's been in camp for a long time, who's been on the hill so many times, and sat on the Superdome? What's your take on this? Well, I remember as a young camper, like, we always, like, we barely went up to the Superdome because it was always, like... Were you in camp before the Superdome opened? No, I was there the year it opened. Like, the yeah. year I was there. I think in 2009, they... They built it, but I remember like we didn't like going up to the Superdome, like because it meant that it was raining or we had to do something up there, and like the Superdome really never had like a moment like this. Like we never like 
I remember, I think we played a 14s, like, game up there. Like, it was raining. Like, uh, Evan Glasser played up there. That was the 12. There was a 12s championship game against yeah. Echo that happened so, up there. I, I, I was, I, I was going to say the Superdome, like Gibbsy was saying, you know, it wasn't a preferred destination. It's like the place where the number two, the number two leagues game that's not going on the court. You're like delegated up to the Superdome. So for one thing about the the Superdome for older uh, alumni that haven't spent much time there or haven't seen it, yeah, it's it's the 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 main court's the size of a high school gym, and we have six baskets in there, two main goals, and then you know four goals on the sides. And I over the years have kind of moved every meaningful practice up there. One. The facility is just designed better for practice, more hoops in a closer space, um, less distractions. You don't have to worry about, you know, um, you know, heat as much against the guys out of the sun. But, you know, the Superdome, we had talked about this a few times. It never had its moment, its sports moment. We had talked about Main Squeeze. We talked about the first 4th of July show there uh, on the last podcast. But it never had its sports moment, and I think there were three different opportunities that we kind of had at our fingertips that we blew, one being the Evan Glatzer 12s, which should have been the moment. I don't know, if Greg, if you remember this, but this was our next big squad coming in. We basically designed the full schedule around making sure everyone – can uh, watch this event. We weren't even playing Brandt. We were playing Echo. It was raining. Everybody was in the Superdome. It was our best team. And Glatzer, Cohen, Bookfar, Potters, and Rab laid a complete egg, and we lost. Yep. I remember that. Um, and it was so disappointing. It was one of those that, like, kind of put me in a bad mood, like, like for days. That's my son. Um, and then... Another moment that I feel like was an opportunity was when Rivers' age group was 14. It started pouring. The game moved up there with about five minutes to go, and Brandt hit like three ridiculous clutch threes, and we lost. That could have been the moment. And then the first year the Superdome opened, Spencer Weiss, who's probably the greatest Adirondack Cup basketball player of all time, was at Brandt. And everybody had heard about him, and we were all set to open up the Superdome to play him in the finals, and we lost the racket and, like, spoiled. Oh, right, right. It was kind of like, you know, it was kind of like when uh, Tyson lost to Buster Douglas and and, uh, Tyson Holyfield never got to happen, you know, kind of thing. You know what my analogy for this moment would be if I, just thinking to relate to people who might not understand, now, take this... Let's talk about the garden for a minute because I think let's talk about the garden in the 21st century. Let's just take that. Forget about the Knicks in the 90s, right? You had, you know, Billy Joel, all these concerts, right? The garden's so special, Rangers, whatever. But, like, the Knicks were just god-awful in the 2000s. And, like, the garden didn't have that feel. And all of a sudden, like, Linsanity happens, right? And all of a sudden, the garden just erupts and it's going crazy. And you're like, oh, like, the Garden can do that, right? We can still do this, right? This is a signature moment. It hasn't happened in so long. You kind of just remember, like, wow, we haven't felt this energy in so long. And that there have been other great moments here, but something's just different when the Garden has a Knicks game. 
being played and when it's just that special atmosphere. And I feel the same way about the Superdome, where we hadn't seen that moment in so long happen in that setting with that context of having a big game there that something just felt different about it that you can't even necessarily put into words. It's just special, right? Yeah, I, th- I mean, when we, when we decided to do this 30 for 30, I kept thinking about it in three different kind of tunnels. One... And I think the most important tunnel is the Ginzy part. Um, the magic of that moment that brought the whole camp together um, that was well beyond sports. Then there was the basketball pivot, Baco basketball pivot moment. And then there was the Superdome. I mean, the Superdome had been starving for that. And Superdome has become like home to Baco basketball. This is going to sound sacrilege, but like, over the last three summers, it's become home to Baco basketball, like even at the expense of the big court in a lot of ways. Um, I think some of the guys... Uh, there's going to be a lot of aggregators showing up in your text I, messages I over think, the next few days. I, I just think the guys that have been through the senior division the last two or three years, they think about their Baco basketball. They, a lot of those blood, sweat, and tears happen in the super in the Superdome. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm a traditionalist. The big court is what it is. It can't be duplicated. But the blood, sweat, and tears is shed in the Superdome now. And, like, it needed that moment to validate it. I think the other thing is how you compare it to the Dome. So, obviously, I'm not there when the Dome exists. How does this – let's, like, do a alternate universe. This setting happens 10 years earlier, 2007. Are you playing this game in the Dome? Is it canceled? Like – is the atmosphere different? Can people even fit in the dome? Like, help for some of us who are. I, I think, from a programming perspective, if the game was to happen, the whole camp wouldn't have been in the dome. I don't think it's just, it couldn't fit, and it's there's just it's. I don't think the younger kids would be even into it. There's no room for them to stand. It's. I also don't know if we win the game. That that court was just. Another subplot is that... I don't agree with Greg that the whole camp couldn't fit in there. I think the whole camp would fit, but for one, I would have been on the horn with fasciculus to make sure it didn't rain. Right. I would have been on the horn. I mean, I arguably would have been on the horn with Brandt trying to get the game moved there. I mean, the dome court was just, it, it was a different sport. It was like the dimensions were off. Um, and Ginzi doesn't hit the shot. He you know what, though? You know what's really interesting to me is that that Ginzi shot is actually, like, if you think about it from a strategic perspective, it's actually a much harder shot on a full-size, like, high school regulation court just by virtue of the distance than either the dome or the big court, right? So I think that's another subplot, too. I mean, if you would have gone glass, if you would have thrown it off the glass, they had some very forgiving backboards in the original dome. So maybe if Ginzi throws it up against the board, it drops in. But if he shoots the, the shot put floater, high arcer for the swish, I think it's he either overshoots it or it clanks off back rim, and it's the whole the whole experience is different. I, I do I do think that the one thing that might be better or at least equivalent if it was in the dome is the the elation of the Ginzi shot is as good if not better if it's in. Oh, the, I agree with that. Dome. But once again, the dome was louder, was, right? The soup, yeah. The Superdome needed the sports money. It needed the Kinsey. It needed it. Um, you know, the Dome had had things of that nature before. 
but the Superdome did. It 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 was a necessary. Uh, it was a necessary event. Yeah, and Ginzi, when you look back on your camp career, what do you do? You, how do you think about that shot in the context of your own camp career and just in general history and what that night meant for your entire waiter bunk? Not not just you hitting that shot, but the combination of you hitting that shot, your your boys in your bunk getting it done, and everything just kind of culminating in such a huge success before Olympics. What do you think that meant to you guys as a bunk? Well, like, that was definitely, like, the highlight of my big career, like, itself. But, like, as a bunk, like, that was, like, like, top of the top. Like, we were, like, on Mount Everest, like, at the very top. And, like, we, like, had fun that night. That was probably the craziest night. Like, that probably brought us all together even more than it did when we were, like, put in one bunk. I mean, there were, it was, like, there were multi, there was more than one once-in-a-lifetime things going on at that moment in time like it's incredible it was it was like uh you win the lottery while you find out you're winning the lottery while having front row seats to game seven of your favorite team winning its championship like at the same time it was oh it was talked about the hour after ginzy was ginzy's probably still in the hour after right now ginzy are you still in the hour after a little bit yeah (laughs) <laughs> I mean, yes, we're talking about it. And then can we just talk about, to wrap it up, the way that it was wrapped up on that night, the way we're going to wrap up this 30 for 30 with the dance party at the archery field. Can you think of a more random place in camp to have a dance party coming up from the Superdome than at the archery field? Like, I definitely can't think of a more buggy place. I just don't understand how it's like half raining out. Everyone's coming back from the Superdome. I came for the life when we understand how a dance party ended up happening at the archery field. I think just logistically, the courts were off limits probably because they were soaked, which is like the normal dance party spot. Um, most people probably uh, were migrating from the Superdome towards the terrace with hopes of milk call, even though milk call wasn't happening because it was wet. Um, and probably like Danny Weiner and some other waiters just, you know, decided let's just run around and the. Uh, the archery field was the first, like, flat patch of grass that they saw. And, hey, the archery field needed a moment also. You know? <laughs> I mean, it sounds to me like it was a senior division-created dance party, which at that time of the evening, the, the K-House, bone 22, 23, 24, they're going to gravitate towards that towards that field anyway. And then you got, you know, the fun village is right there too. Um, so now you're just leaving out the circle and down the hill, and those kids – you know, that's downtown Baco, as we discussed a few weeks ago, and they, they know where the action's at. Yeah, so I think overall, do any of you guys have any parting thoughts on this game? I think we did a pretty good summation of what happened and what made that night so special, because there's just so much. I mean, I feel like we could do, like, two or three on this one night. There's so much going on. It's just a loaded subject. It's a loaded night, and we're talking about this thing. We've spent almost as, as much time talking about the event than the event itself. And I think that shows... I, I think that I, I think it's a great idea for us to do these deep dives into specific moments. In yeah, camp we'll have a lot more coming up soon. That's what makes camp so special, is the people and the moments that they create. But I, I've said it before within this last hour. I'm going to say it one more time. This is about Ginzi making that shot. He, he floated that thing right through the hoop and created magic like the most magical place in the world had never felt. And I want to thank Ginzi for hitting that shot. 
I want to thank whoever put them at half court and whoever gave them that ball. Maybe this is a nice endorsement of Timberlands um, or the shooting shirt company, whatever apparel you were wearing that day. But that, that I will never forget that moment as long as I live. And I don't think Baco will ever forget it either. My parting thought is one of my – I have a couple of regrets of my Baco career. One being I never really went for the lead in my big show. But what buries that is – I wasn't actually in the Superdome when he hit it. As central as I was to the evening, I didn't actually see it. Does this and make I, you I, reconsider future years, whether you have the halftime huddle no, close no, to the court? No. No. I, I think it. whatever happened that night happened for a reason. Danny and I share a brain enough where I think he can see the images in my brain watching Ginzi make that shot. I know Danny wasn't in the building, but he's as close to being in the building as possible. Yeah, I, I just, whatever happened that night was perfect. The people that didn't see it, 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 it was supposed to be that. Even the people who probably haven't been in camp in 20 years before this can picture the moment, right? It's that type of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, All right, yeah. As long as they know Ginzi's shooting form, they can picture it. All right, and Ginzi, any last words to say on what really goes down as the Ginzi game? Honestly, we covered most of it, but honestly, I can't remember what happened after I hit that shot. <laughs> Has there ever been a game where the game is known for a player making the shot who wasn't even on the team? <laughs> It's pretty. Uh, it's a pretty remarkable thing when you think about it. The Ginzi shot game for a player who probably did wouldn't have even cracked the B team. On the on on the complete reverse of that, it's almost like the reverse Bartman game, where it's like someone who had nothing to do with either of the teams or the competition came to define the game, but in the complete opposite way. It's it was, true. It was literally. I can't believe it took us an hour and ten minutes to figure this out, but it was literally the anti reverse Bartman. It was the reverse Bartman. Yeah, pretty crazy. So I think if you are still listening to us at this podcast at this point, we thank you very much for sticking through. We're going to be doing a lot more of these deep dives. There's so many great topics at Bigo. There's so many magical moments that really create the atmosphere. Thank you guys so much all for doing this. Thank you, Maddie. It's just Thanks, great. Maddie. Thanks, Maddie. Thanks, Josh. So good to see you. And thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Baco Sports Report. We will be back, hopefully, next week with more of these podcasts. I am your host, Maddie Wasserman, signing off, and we will see you next time on the Baco Sports Report.